Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we, we come before You now in this time of our service as we continue our worship by turning our attention to Your Word. We are, are helpless without You. We, we are so in need of Your guidance, of Your truth, and so we thank You that as we come to this book, this letter of Colossians, that um, Lord, we know that this is Your Word, and here You teach us about Yourself. You teach us about us. You reveal our sin and You reveal Your solution for that sin, Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. We turn our attention to Your Word because these are words of truth. We turn our attention to this because Your Spirit has inspired this and it is all that we need for life and godliness. We turn our attention to Your Word because in it You have given us what we need to walk in righteousness. And so I pray that as we turn our attention here that you would give us ears to hear that we would be able to focus and pay attention to what you have to say to us here i pray that you would give us hearts that would be soft as these things as these things are are understood by our minds please change us today please transform us so that we look more like jesus as a result of encountering him in your word this morning in his name we pray and ask this amen well ray steadman once told the story of a farmer who had a horse, and his horses kept slobbering all over everything. And he saw an, a, an advertisement in a farm magazine offering a cure for a fee of $20. And so he scraped together the money and he wrote asking for the secret, and in turn he received a very thin envelope containing a single sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper were the, written the words, teach your horse to spit. You know, the, the, word, the world is full of charlatans and con artists that are all too willing to, to sell you empty promises. Some will steal your wallet. Some will take your identity. They'll offer you an extended car warranty, and then they'll run away with the house. And most of you have learned how to avoid those deceivers, and you've learned the signs, and you know how to protect yourself from being hoodwinked. But, but how many of us have that same clarity of mind when, that, that will protect you from being deceived by religious teachers that are just, not just prying open your purse? They're not selling car warranties. They're not after your identity. But they're after your mind. They serve, they serve rulers and authorities. Spiritual beings that exist in angelic realms. And they come to you with ideas and philosophies that enslave you. And, and many Christians... Many Christians aren't even sober-minded enough to realize that they've already been sucked in. In chapter 1 of Colossians, we've been looking at this beautiful letter that Paul wrote to this group of people that he had never met before. He knew their pastor. He knew a couple individuals. But, but um, he's writing this letter out of his love for this congregation that, that hadn't met him. And he shows them that Jesus is, is greater than. Jesus is the preeminent one. Jesus is superior to all things. He's the Creator. He's the Sustainer. He's God. And when He took on human flesh, Jesus put on full display that He is the image of the invisible God. And everything that God is was put on display so that we may know Him and that we may walk with Him. And so now in chapter 2, verse 8, we finally come to the, the main body of, of the letter. And Paul, having just introduced where he's going to be going over the next couple chapters, we finally arrive to the warning that he has for the Colossians. His concern for them being deceived. And he says in verse 8, he starts and says, See to it. 
See to it. Beware. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. And so we learn that God wants you to be watching. Because we exist and we live in the midst of what we know as a spiritual battle. It's not one where the enemy is after your social security number but the enemy is instead propagating ideas and lies, and he decorates them with with, uh, teachings that sound sophisticated. The Lord described them here as philosophy and empty deceit. And he's not suggesting that the love of wisdom and the love of understanding is somehow evil in and of itself. But but in this arena of philosophy and ideas that are floated around and, and taught back and forth, in this arena of philosophy... Ideas and morals is where Satan is playing his game of trickery. He uses good people. He uses traditions uh, that have been around as long as we can remember in order to lead people gladly into a cage where he offers you everything that you could ever want as long as it hinders you from worshiping Jesus. As long as just for a little while, something else is greater in your life than Christ. And so God says, beware, watch, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, that's the warning for us. Verse 8 contains the command that alerts us to the high stakes of the kind of battle that we are really in. It's not a physical battle. It's not a battle with flesh and blood of people in this world, but it's a battle in which we are in, um, at war with, with God's enemy, a battle that is not of flesh and blood, but of spiritual origin. And throughout the remainder of this passage, though God reminds us uh, th- through this passage, God is going to remind us of four truths that free us from the enemy's cage. And I want you to notice throughout verses 9 to 15 how often Paul uses the phrase, in him, in Christ, in him, he, in him, in him, in him. He's going to say this over and over and over again. In Jesus, in Christ, we are reminded of four truths that demonstrate why Jesus is worthy of our worship and our adoration. Four truths why Jesus is the great, our greater master. The first of these, we find that truth number one is the, full, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. In verse 9, we're reminded that for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a statement that's it's identical to the one that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 19, but he, he adds a couple words. There are a couple words that aren't going to be seen anywhere else in the Bible. But um, the idea is this. Jesus is the eternal one. He's the eternal, holy God. He's he's not saying that Jesus and God the Father are the same person. The three persons of the Trinity are all one God, but they are distinguishable persons that interact with one another, that talk with one another, that love one another. However, everything, everything that God is, all of His power, all of His knowledge, all of His divine attributes are completely contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know God, if you want to understand who He is as He's revealed Himself, then you will best comprehend Him by knowing Jesus. And, and this verse adds the, word deity and, and the words deity and bodily. Everything that explains God, everything that explains who He is, was on full display 
in bodily form in the man, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches us, and Colossians here teaches us, that God stepped into our world and He walked with us. And when He became a man, He remained completely, 100% of all that God is. Now Satan tells us this lie. Satan tells us this lie that we can become like God. He's been telling that lie ever since Adam and Eve, right from the very beginning. Did God really say? Did God really tell you this? Well, let, let, me, let me offer you something different. And he, and he offers these ideas and temptations. And, he, and, and Satan tells us this lie that we can become like God. That we can become gods ourselves. And the Colossians were being taught some sort of false teaching within their own congregation in their town from without by these false teachers, that, that really Jesus was just the first step. If you really want to get to know God, then, then okay, Jesus is great, and we're glad that you got to know Him and He introduced you to God, but, but they were being taught that if you really want to grow in your faith and have a, a perfect knowledge of God, then you need to move on to these other things. But Paul and Timothy counter these lies. And they say, no, all the fullness... All of the fullness of God dwells in Him bodily. Jesus is greater than, and because He is everything that God is, then you can find everything that you need in Him. Look at how he continues in verse 10. He says, And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so put simply, you will not find satisfaction, you will not find joy and fulfillment in anything else in this life like you will by knowing Jesus. The rulers and the authorities and the angelic realms, they will spin all kinds of ideas around you and in your life of what will make you happy. Temptation will be put in front of you. Entertainment, fame, a career, education, sex, power. The deception of Satan's philosophy is that something else can fulfill you. Something else can fill that place that Jesus wants to have in your life. And something else can give you more than Jesus can. And the moment that you lose sight of Jesus, you start worshiping something else besides Him. Because we're created to worship. And something is always going to get your attention. Something is always going to receive your worship. And if it is not Christ, it's going to be something else. I love how R. Kent Hughes puts it. Uh, he said, Christ can hold all the fullness of deity. Christ can hold all the fullness of deity. We cannot. But we are full of His fullness. He said, my wife and I once stood on the shore of the vast Pacific Ocean, two finite dots alongside a seemingly infinite expanse. As we stood there, we reflected that, that if I were to take a pint jar from the ocean to rush into it, in an instant my jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific. But I could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean into my jar. Thinking of Christ, we realize that because He is infinite, He can hold all the fullness of deity. And whenever one of his, us finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our life into Him, we instantly become full of His fullness. We must also understand that His fullness meets our individual needs. He gives us what what the moment requires. Wisdom, strength, courage. We must remember too that as we continue in Him, we experience the satisfaction of His fullness. A continual stream filling and overflowing our lives. What Colossians does here is really remarkable. 
You know, if, I, if I was writing Colossians and I was writing to this group of people, I knew you know, they're struggling with, with these false teachers that, that come in. What kind of letter would you and I write? I've got some books for you, Colossians. You know, you got these people telling you you need to worship angels. I've got, I got ten books that you need to read by September. And you read these books and get out through all these and then we'll talk and we'll have a Bible study and we'll unpack all this and, and we're going we're gonna to tackle each one of these little... That's not what Paul does here. You see... It's remarkable because he warns of these philosophies and this empty deceit that was apart from Christ. But rather than point them to books to read about angels and the weakness of different false ideas, he instead he points them to truths that demonstrate why Jesus alone is worthy of our worship and our adoration. Three times already he's pointed us to the phrase, in him. And he reminds us why Jesus is a greater master. And he takes us back to the basics. And that's what he does with the Colossians. They're, they're, being, they're being taught these false teachings that just something else is better than Jesus. And, and rather than go into all the details of, of, of and at other times maybe, maybe they did, but, but the priority is going back to the basics of Jesus being a greater master. And this, that's what he does with us. He takes us back to the basics. And so Jesus is a greater master because all the fullness of deity dwells in Him. But the second reason He's a greater Master is because we fully participate in death and life with Jesus. Now the first truth reminded us of Jesus' deity. The second is going to remind us of the Gospel. Look at verses 11-12. to 12. Actually, the second two truths are going to remind us of the Gospel. In verses 11 and 12, we read, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the power working of God, powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Now, it's likely that there was probably a Jewish element that was involved in the false teaching that the Colossians were facing at this time. Perhaps the Colossian believers were being tempted to embrace different aspects of Judaism. Maybe there was a branch of Judaism that was getting into some mystical thinking. But, but they were being shown a religion where they were taught that they could be saved by, by their good deeds. That they could achieve their own righteousness. And so Paul uses this metaphor of circumcision to describe how their old life apart from Christ was, was cut away. He even extends this metaphor to the death of Christ and pictures Jesus on the cross as His body was cut away from Him. That In His death, He died. He was cut off. And in a similar fashion, our sin is cut away. Thus the picture of a circumcision that was done without human hands. And so God teaches us that in a very real spiritual sense, we participate with Jesus you and I participate with Jesus in His death when we repent of our sin and we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. When you became a Christian, your old self died. The old you died. You Just like Jesus really died on the cross, your old nature died. And then later, your baptism, it was a picture of that death. It was a picture that you were a new person. And by obeying Christ and being baptized, you declared to everyone how the old you it was gone. And, and it, it died the moment that Jesus had redeemed you. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 6-7, to he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. And again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so it's more than just dying with Christ, but, but just as we died with Him, we are also raised with Him to new life. And through faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead, He poured out His grace on you. And God saved and made you alive. He made you alive. As real as Jesus' resurrected body was from the tomb on the third day, so also you also have been raised to life that you are now able to live for Christ. And there's a very practical aspect of this as we as we refuse to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You see, daily we're commanded. We are called to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness, alive to Christ. Daily, we, in our walk with Him, as we seek to honor Christ, we are to consider the realities of our new relationship with sin and our new relationship with, with Jesus. That we are dead to sin and resurrected in, have resurrected life in Jesus. And so Jesus is greater Master because He is God. He's the greater Master because of the good news of His death, burial, and resurrection. And then our participation in that with Him. But there's a third truth that we're reminded showing us that Jesus is the greater Master. Paul goes on and he shows us that, that Jesus is a greater Master because we have full forgiveness of our debt. He continues in verses 13 and 14. He says, He reiterates this complete work that Jesus accomplished for us. And he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. In the picture of of death, again, it demonstrated that apart from Christ, we were completely unable to save ourselves. If you walked across the street and you look at some of the tombstones, some of those have been there for a long time. You can barely read the, the, the letters and the inscription on some of those, those tombstones and, and headstones anymore. And just like the bodies that are lying six feet under the, uh, across the street, they are completely unable to come back to life. You're not going to see one of them walk into the surface here today. We, we might be a little scared if they did, right? At least I would. Nobody else here apparently. You know, not one of them has the power to raise themselves from the dead. But Christ, but Christ, our eternal life, He came back from the dead so that you and I also can receive spiritual life. In Christ, our eternal life is already a present reality and our physical resurrection is assured and it will follow. And so this picture of forgiveness in the same way, it demonstrates that apart from Christ, we were completely unable to save ourselves and we stood condemned by the law. Your sin and my sin, it was written, it was registered, recorded as a testimony to give account of all of your trespasses, of all of my trespasses. It's been told that Martin Luther experienced the reality of this truth in a dream that he had one night in which he was visited by, at night by Satan. And in his dream, Satan came and he brought to him a record of his own life written in Martin Luther's own hand. And the tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write it? 
And the poor, terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. And at length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. And suddenly, the reformer turns to the tempter and he said, It is true, every word of it. But right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Yeah, the word that's used here in verse 14, it's, um, it, it, it's a word that's used to, uh, that, excuse, <coughs> excuse me, the word that's used here in verse 14 is um, that the record of our trespass has been, has been canceled. I like the translation that I read somewhere, um, obliterated. The record of your sin has been obliterated. It's a word that was used by scribes of, of blotting something out. Something off of a paper. And in ancient times, they would have papyrus, and, and it was expensive. You know, we have paper, and we print out all kinds of stuff. I printed out a book for you all for Sunday school today. Uh, we have lots of paper, lots of ink, but in ancient times, it didn't come by so readily. And, and that papyrus was expensive, and so the scribes would reuse paper when, whenever they could. And the ink that they, that they used... It didn't have acid in it. And so it just it sat on the surface of the paper. And so if there was something that they didn't need anymore, the scribe would, would take that piece of paper and, and he would take a sponge and he would blot out the entire, uh, all of the ink and he would start with a, a fresh sheet as if nothing had ever been written on that piece of paper. The debt was gone. And we're told that Jesus at the cross, He removed our debt. He blotted it out. It is no more. And it is a blank sheet of paper. Payment was made when Jesus died and through your faith in the Son of God who paid the price for in your place, your debt was wiped away. And then just as wonderful, the truth declared by Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. And so if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then He declares two things are true. Your sins have been blotted out, completely wiped away, completely obliterated. Your sins are no longer recorded. And then secondly, your name has been written in a different kind of book where your name will never be, be blotted out. It is written there as proof of your life in Him. And that can never be removed. Jesus is a greater Master because He's God. Jesus is a greater Master because of the good news of His death, burial, and resurrection and our participation with Him in that in spiritual realities that are just as real as Jesus rising from the dead. And Jesus is a greater master because of the forgiveness that's accomplished by Jesus at the cross. But finally, we're also reminded that Jesus is a greater master because He fully triumphed over the enemy. You know, we experience life in a limited number of ways. You, um, you get up in the morning and, and um, you, you see your reflection in the mirror and, and sometimes you run away and then you come back and try to fix it. You, you smell things, breakfast and the coffee, and, and, and we, we operate in this life by the senses that God's given to us. 
A lot of people last year remarked uh, how, how strange it was when they lost their sense of taste and their sense of smell. It was disorienting. Something was different. It wasn't quite right. It's how we know things. We rely on touch and sight and sound and, and, and we experience the world around us. But the, the Bible teaches us that there are other spiritual realities that exist around us. Angels and demons serve and oppose our God and we are a part of that world and, and we exist with them in, around us in some way, though we can't see it with our own eyes. In Sunday school today, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 10 and we're going to read about an instance where the prophet Daniel was given a glimpse of that realm. Uh, probably one of the most vivid descriptions uh, in the Bible of, of how some of that operated. And we'll see some of what the angelic warfare was, was like as it, took, as it takes place around us. But this idea of angels and demons, and it, it scares a lot of people, doesn't it? There, there's just a lot of unknowns. You, you think about maybe somebody sitting next to you that you can't see. And, and we start going, oh, what's going on with this? And, but the Bible talks about realities of, you know, we are, the, 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 um, in, in Hebrews, he talks about how to be careful how you walk because you never know when you're entertaining angels. They're watching us. They're, they're watching to see how we glorify God. And the demons watch and they cringe when, when your life honors God. And that is a personal affront and an attack to them. And this idea of these angelic beings, it scares a lot of people. Some people, it fascinates them. It's certainly a world that we have limited information about. And so, so there's a lot of unknowns on this side of eternity. But you have to understand and make no mistake that Colossians chapter 2 affirms the reality of spiritual beings that, that we speak of generally as angels and demons. Verse 8 speaks to the fact that Satan and his minions are actively at work in the philosophies of the world, the ideas that are spread. They shape and they twist the ideas of man and they distort many of the things that are good and they infiltrate it with empty deceit. Verse 10 alludes to the concept that there's, that there's rank, that there's some sort of hierarchy within this world of, of demonic forces. They're called rulers and authorities here. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, which was written about this same time in verse 12, he tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Same two words that are used here in Colossians. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so don't be mistaken about who the enemy is. You, you get in spouts with your neighbor and, and, and people at school and people at work, and we start confusing who the enemy really is. Politics gets intense. You get on Facebook and people are just slashing at each other. Remember that that is not the enemy. That is not the enemy. There are many in this world who are deceived, but people are not your enemy. They may be serving the enemy and they may be confused and deceived by the enemy, but our enemy is an entirely different on an entirely different level. But here's the fourth truth. The fourth troop? The fourth truth. The fourth truth is this. Jesus has triumphed over these rulers and authorities. Notice what he did. First it says he disarmed them. When two armies face one another, they go to battle. And finally, one, one side surrenders. What's the first thing that the other side does? Take away all their... Yeah, drop your arms. Put them down. Put up your hands. Lay on the ground. One of the first things they do is they take away all of their weapons. They're stripped of their ability to inflict massive damage. And at the cross, we are told, Jesus disarmed Satan. Isn't that a glorious truth? 
Jesus disarmed Satan. He still seeks to destroy and He is still intelligent and powerful and a great deceiver. But don't forget that Jesus has stripped Him and His underlings of their power. Hebrews chapter 2 says that He has rendered them powerless. Secondly, Jesus, it says, put them to open shame. In, in Roman times, the victor in a battle, he would, he would first disarm the enemy, but then he would take that enemy and he would go back to Rome. And they would have a celebration. And they would toss wreaths out on, the, out on the streets for him. And he would ride on a white horse. And he would parade down the streets of Rome. And in front of him would be the armies of the enemy. And, and the, the, the captains and the lieutenants would be followed by the servants. And there in the back... Dressed in black would be the commander of the enemy forces, humiliated, followed by the victor on his white horse. We learn here that Jesus has triumphed. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God has triumphed over Satan. And the rulers and authorities of this world, they seek to deceive And they do a lot of deceiving. And they do a lot of damage by confusing and deceiving people into ideas in which they destroy one another. The rulers and authorities of this world, they they seek to deceive them, but they have been stripped of their power and they have been publicly defeated in humiliation when Jesus died on the cross and when He rose from the dead. And the point here, this is the point of it all. The Colossians were being told that these angels, that, that it was angels like these that, that needed to be worshipped. They needed to be respected and revered. And if you wanted to really grow in your knowledge of God, then Jesus was one of those angels maybe, but maybe let's move on to these others because these will really show you the way. And so there's this worship of angels that we're going to see later on in the book of Colossians that was being introduced. And these beings would lead the Colossians to a higher wisdom, to a deeper understanding that Jesus just couldn't give them. That's what they were being taught. And it's a lie. That's, there, there are, there's still many today who, who try to contact these beings to glean from their wisdom. Books and TV. You go down to the bookstore, you turn on, on Netflix and, and, and TV shows, and they're, they're being written left and right, and they're glorifying these fallen creatures and, and showing that, that they're something other than they're not. And Colossians teaches us that Jesus has triumphed completely. They have been disarmed. They have been humiliated. And their final destruction is approaching. So why would I exchange? Why would I exchange the greatest Master for one who hates me? Why would I trade the one who loves me and died for me for one who hates me and despises me and is only using me and wants to ruin my life? And why would I abandon Jesus when He has already crushed the head of the serpent? MacArthur put it this way. He said to worship such defeated and humiliated beings would be the height of folly. The cross is the answer to the Colossians' errorists' insistence on worshiping angelic beings. And through the Lord Jesus and His work on the cross, God canceled the believer's debt, defeating Satan and his fallen angels. Though we still wrestle against the forces of evil, they cannot be victorious. Christ the crucified, risen Lord of all, reigns supreme in the universe. And so to be united with Him is to be free from Satan's dominion. So what does Satan have left? He's been defeated. We know that his doom is sure. 
And so now he resorts to deception. And out of his, his hatred for the risen Savior, the enemies of God try with all of their might to take you captive through the ideas and the deceptions that they perpetuate throughout this world. And again, he will offer you everything that you could ever want as long as it hinders you from worshiping Jesus. As long as just for a little while something else is greater than Jesus in your life. That's his plan of attack. That is where he fights the most vigorously. Verse 8 tells us that it follows human tradition, these philosophies and this empty deceit. It's through, uh, through human tradition. And so I was asking myself, where do we pass along our traditions today? For this audience, it was, it was the Jewish traditions and there was, there was teaching being taught regarding things at the temple and circumcision and, and a lot of the, um, the things that were taught in, in many of the other churches like in Galatians. But what are the traditions today that Satan uses? How is truth and falsehood communicated? Where is it that, that you were told this is how life works? Where are the places that good and bad ideas are blended together? Truth and lies walk side by side until both start to look like the other. And so let me just offer you a few suggestions. When you turn on your TV, or your favorite social media. This philosophy and empty deceit is paraded in front of you as entertainment. When you send your children and your grandchildren to schools, there they learn the traditions that will guide them to a better life. We embrace news, embrace news media that shows us how much better than we are, we are than those other people. And then those same news media outlets inform us of the things in this life that are worthy of you being afraid. Because obviously, Jesus can't handle that. Politics engages us in culture and it tells us which leaders will save you from destruction and in whom you put your hope. Advertisements will entice us and tell us where you fall short of one another's, expect, uh, one another's standards. And then those same advertisements will lead you to where your eyes can devour pictures and videos that tell you what true beauty and true pleasure is. We turn on Christian radio and television where we hear some great Christian music and some biblical preaching that leads us to living waters, but then it's mixed with other music that glorifies man and it's mixed with false teaching that leads many to a cesspool of, of heresy. Don't hear me wrong. I, I, I'm not telling you that you can't watch a movie and enjoy some entertainment. I'm not telling you and saying to you that you can't listen to radio, that you can't go to a football, you, that you can't watch the news, vote, or put your children on a bus to school. There are a lot of good people in all of these environments. Many of you work in those environments, and, and you are honoring God in schools and in politics and in, and, and, and in a variety of different fields in your life. And there are a lot of people that you work with that are well-intentioned people that are also deceived. But, but many of us are going into these environments unaware, unready, we're sending our children into these environments where they're exposed to ideas and Satan is doing everything he can to deceive them and we're not preparing them for it. God wants us in many of these environments. Some of your children are going to do great in school and they're going to have a testimony that's amazing. Some of you go to work and, and, and you are a light to the people that you work with. But many of us are not ready and not alert and we're not being aware. What I am saying and what our text is teaching is that we need to wake up. And we need to understand 
that every one of these places is where the demonic world is engaged in spreading ideas and doing everything he can to deceive as many as he can, even amidst those people that are good and where a lot of good things are happening. Jesus warned us that we are in the world, but we are not of it. And so many good and wholesome ideas are presented, but they're mixed with many lies in many places. And God commands us here to beware. So how dare we turn off our minds just so we can be entertained without giving thought to what's being communicated in that entertainment? How dare we surrender our children to the world and assume that they're just going to figure it out on their own or that everybody has their best interests in mind without looking after our children and teaching them the truth? How dare we accept the lie that anything else can even remotely act as a substitute for the God who became a man who is greater than anything that this world has to offer? And so my friends, guard your minds. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, He calls out to you and and He beckons to you and He says, look, there's so much more that I have to offer you. And I offer you my grace. I offer you salvation. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you to go from death to life. He offers you Himself. The one true God who lived and showed us what God is like. He offers you a life of victory over the enemy. And all you have to do is believe in Him. Believe that Jesus died for you on the cross because He took your place. We were all destined to to a hell separated from Him. But He gave to us His Son so that we might have eternal life because Jesus paid the price that I couldn't pay, that you couldn't pay. But the only one perfect God-man died in our place and He paid the price that canceled our debt. And that comes through faith in Him. So my friends, let us guard our minds. Remind yourselves and your children and each other of these truths. Scripture declares to us about Jesus. It declares about our salvation. And it declares about the victory that He has accomplished. And so as we reflect on these basics, as we go back to the basic truths of who Jesus is, my prayer for you this week is that your worship of Him would be sweet. Father, we thank You that You have given to us Jesus Christ. You've provided a way where we couldn't provide a way. We couldn't raise ourselves to life. We couldn't pay the debt. But Jesus came and He gave us life. He raised Himself from the dead, demonstrating that He is truly God, accomplishing the most impossible. Not only raised Himself to life, but He gave those who believe eternal life. He canceled our debt. He gave us forgiveness and accomplished victory over the enemy. Thank You for the reminder that You give to us this morning of these truths, and we pray that You would help us to live and walk in these truths, knowing that Jesus is greater than all this. And so might we worship Him and Him alone. Amen.